Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon and welcome to the ACB National Convention and welcome to the first activity sponsored by ACB Families. We are so glad you're here. People are still coming into the Zoom room and hopefully people are also still connecting. I'm sure they are on ACB Media. We are on Channel 2 on ACB Media and we are just so pleased to have people with us ever how you're listening out there. This afternoon, we're going to have a tour of Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and uh, we also are going to have a, a visit uh, from a park ranger, name is Ashley, uh, from the cave. And uh, but before we begin, I want to give you just a little bit of information about ACB Families. ACB Families is a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, and uh, the um, ACB Families has two meetings each, the first and third Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern. We have them on Zoom and sometimes on ACB Media. And uh, one of the meetings that in the month is a program, and the other is sometimes a program and sometimes a meeting. We like to uh, provide some peer support for people who have families, whether they be families with kids or families with grandparents. You know, we all live in a family, and we would love for everyone to be part of our affiliate. It is a growing and active affiliate in ACB, and all are welcome. We urge you to register for ACB families in the registration process. If you register for ACB families, you will be, of course, in on our door prize drawings. And last year, we had a lot of door prizes, a lot of winners, and the same thing is true this year. If you need more information on ACB families, you can contact us by calling 502-897-1472, and I will be happy to assist you. Now, I want to give the beginning codes for the continuing education credit, and that code is 24481. So, if you are, um, if you have purchased or plan to use your flex credit for this session, the code you will need for the opening, the beginning code is 2481. Please write that down. We will not be repeating that code in uh, in this session. All right. So now let's begin uh, by, uh, by introducing our speaker. In fact, I want her to introduce herself because she has an interesting story. And um, Ashley Decker is a park ranger, a tour guide, with Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky. And she uh, she is from that area. And Ashley, I'd like for you just to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to show our tour and then come back and have you tell us some stories and answer some questions about Mammoth Cave. So uh, I'll turn some time over to you here. Welcome. Thank you, Carla. Well, first off, let me thank everyone for joining us today. Um, my name is Ashley. I've been a park ranger here at Mammoth Cave for going on seven years. Uh, as Carla had mentioned, my family is local. Growing up as a kid, I would often come back to this area, and Mammoth Cave was my first national park. My mom and my dad are both from here, but my father was a Marine, so I moved around quite a bit. But Mammoth Cave and in Kentucky was my home during the summer and my only place that I could really set down roots. So later on in life, we moved back here more permanently and I fell in love with Mammoth Cave. Um, coming from a background where everyone around me was in uniforms and I looked at them with such pride, um, I really wanted to be just like those people. Uh, Instead of joining the military, I found a way to serve here. And I came to our national parks and hopefully inspiring others. It's, it's one of the things that I really, truly fell in love with. And I have a 12-year-old son, and 
it's oftentimes very hard for me to keep him on the trail. He's fallen in love with the cave and going on our crawling tours. And hopefully one day I can pass my torch on to him. and He can continue wearing the flat hat and telling others about the Mammoth Cave story. Okay, thank you. I'm sure that your son has had a, a great time growing up in that cave because it, it is so fascinating. Uh, I want to thank our uh, Desi Noller, who is our um, host, and Jeff Bishop, who is streaming for us. And uh, they're, they're going to help us make this session a success. And so let's begin by hearing the tour of Mammoth Cave that the park prepared for us uh, for the Kentucky Council of the Blind Convention last fall. And we just enjoyed that tour so much. And, um, and, but we didn't have anyone to kind of um, answer questions and so on with it. So we wanted to share it with everyone. And families thought this would be a great way to do that. Jeff, can we, can we um, play our audio tour now? Hello. I'm Ranger Chris. Welcome to Mammoth Cave National Park, home of the world's longest known cave system. With 412 mapped and explored miles of cave passage and numerous more passages awaiting exploration, no other single cave system comes close. On the surface, Mammoth Cave National Park encompasses almost 53,000 acres of lush forest, rocky outcrops, rivers, streams, and over 80 miles of hiking trails available for visitor use. The route we'll be taking today will cover almost a mile of the historic section of Mammoth Cave, where we'll travel through the passages that gave the cave its name, Mammoth. It's a balmy 89 degrees outside, and the humidity hangs heavy in the air. Fall is almost here, and the leaves are slowly beginning to fade from the green of summer to the amber hues of fall. We begin our tour of Mammoth Cave with Ranger Chris, walking down an eighth of a mile paved path that was once the county road. As we descend the hill toward the cave entrance, you'll notice rough, grainy, brown sandstone peeking out of the banks on each side of the trail. Nearing the cave entrance, we can see the stone transition to a smoother gray limestone, a rock that makes up the vast majority of the cave's interior. The Green River, which flows at the base of this hill, has spent its existence cutting its way downward through these rock layers and creating the hills and valleys around us. Locals once used this path to access the ferry that would shuttle them to what is now the north side of the park. Leaves crunch beneath your feet as the aroma of blossoms and fall fill the air. Along the trail, late summer flowers are still in bloom, scattering bits of azure, gold, and ivory along the lush green moss-covered rocks exposed in the hillside. At the end of the road, there is an old timber fence to the right of the trail. Four steps lead you up to a landing. A cool breeze tickles across your feet. Searching the landscape gives no obvious source as to where it's coming from, but as you walk further and step down four more steps, you move even closer to the brisk air. On each side of the landing, there is a stone wall with a dark green moss and white algae growing on the undisturbed surfaces. The moss feels like thick, soft carpet beneath your touch. The top of the stone is barren of life where visitors and rangers have touched and walked along the surface. At the edge of the landing, the rock wall twists downward to the right, leading to 68 concrete steps descending into the darkness. Gray limestone layers have peeled away, forming a gaping hole into the depths of the subterranean world. This is the source of the frigid air. You stop here as Ranger Chris begins to address the tour group. We are now standing at the entrance of Mammoth Cave. This land was designated a national park in 1941, over 30 years before we knew of its amazing length. This designation came about largely because of the unique history of Mammoth Cave, a history as diverse, layered, and complex as its passages. Around 5,000 years ago, late archaic, and early woodland Indians made their way into and through at least 14 miles of the cave. Their exploration, which would span for more than 2,000 years, was a testament to their bravery, curiosity, and persistence, and was lit only by the dull glow of a torch made from river cane, the same type that grows along the banks of the river today. We believe they stopped utilizing the cave around 2,000 years ago, 
and have no evidence that anyone else would enter until settlers moved into the area. Local legend says that around 1798, a young boy, John Houchins, was roaming these very hillsides in search of game to take home to his family. Armed with his father's long rifle, John spotted a beast that today is no longer found within the National Park. With a shaky hand, John raised his rifle and took aim at a large black bear. Staring down the barrel, he squeezed the trigger. Boom! As the puff of smoke dissipated, the bear was gone. John caught sight of the animal once again. Wounded but alive, the bear ran down the hill and into a huge opening in the ground with John in pursuit. Stories like that of John Houchins have served to spark the curiosity and imagination of millions of people for the last 200 years. As we travel through the cave today, I hope to share with you more of the stories that paved the way for Mammoth Cave to become your 26th National Park. You follow Ranger Chris down into the cave. Cascading from the top of the entrance is a waterfall that has emerged from between the limestone layers. On days when there is very little rain, the waterfall is diminished to a trickle. But when there is ample precipitation, the waterfall roars down and crashing onto the rocks below. The mist from the waterfall hits you as you pass beside it, and the sound is echoing off the limestone walls at the entrance. A multitude of cool-weather plants still thrive here during the peak of the summer heat and surround the large cave entrance. The cave air protects the delicate frills of many verdant ferns, ruby-colored columbines, and ivory blooms of native hydrangea plants. You continue down the man-made path as the light from the sun begins to dim and the wind from the cave begins to rush towards you. It causes you to cling to the jacket that made no sense for you to bring in the late summer swelter. In the chill of the 54 degrees, though, it has become a lifeline to retain the heat next to you. The cave smells of damp earth mixed with a smell of fire that clings to the clothing of camping visitors. Two stainless steel doors, seven feet tall, guard the entrance. On each side of the doors, rusty, four-inch-wide metal bars run horizontal to the stone walls of the cave allowing the air and the wildlife to travel freely. Ranger Chris pulls a key from his pocket and unlocks the door. Once you step through, the wind begins to settle and the golden light of the LED bulbs illuminates the chamber. Entering the first passage of the cave known as the Houchins Narrows, there is a low ceiling, around five feet high. You duck slightly as the paved trail slopes downward, allowing your head to clear the ceiling safely. In this twilight zone, the sunlight can no longer penetrate the darkness of the cave. There are no animals or plants from the surface that can survive beyond this point. The only creatures that call this place home have uniquely adapted to the absolute darkness of the environment. Over 200 species live in these depths, such as the eyeless cavefish, the eyeless crayfish, Pack rats, cave crickets, pseudoscorpions, various arachnids, cave beetles, and about 12 breeds of bats, to name a few. You continue walking down the Houchins Narrows for several minutes until you reach a huge circular-shaped room. The expansive quarter-of-an-acre-sized room extends out in front of you and has two large passages branching off to your left and to your right. The dome ceiling is 34 feet from the floor. This cave is considered a dry cave due to the caprock of sandstone and shell above the layers of limestone. The added layers prevent water from getting in and allows the cave passages to stay connected. Without this feature, Mammoth Cave would be a grouping of many smaller caves filled with formations like stalactites and stalagmites. No formations decorate the walls and ceilings in this section of the system. Anything that is left behind in this environment becomes preserved due to the constant climate, much like a time capsule. In the center of the room, in an area 10 feet below your walking path, there are three square boxes, 11 feet wide and 5 feet tall. They have wooden plank sides and are filled with light brown dirt. At the bottom of the boxes, you can see tree logs that have been hollowed out and halved. They have been placed in a pattern alternating, facing up and down to form an interlocking structure. Welcome to the Rotunda. We are now approximately 140 feet below the surface. This massive room with a circular ceiling is the result of the ancient rivers that once flowed through these passages, carving away the limestone rock. 
As unstable rock gave away and settled to the floor, we were left with a natural breakout dome. In addition to leaving behind large passageways, the rivers left a thick layer of sediment on the cave floor. Early settlers who entered these dry caves discovered that the sediment deposits were rich in calcium nitrate, a mineral that sparks when exposed to flame. The settlers figured out how to leach the nitrates from the soil by gathering dirt in these boxes. They engineered a piping system from hollowed out tulip poplar trees, sharpening one end and forcing it into the blunted end of the next log. Pipes carried water from the mouth of the cave to these dirt-filled boxes. Water poured over the layers of dirt, pulling with it the nitrates from the soil. The water would travel through the filter made by the interlocking logs at the bottom, separating debris from the nitrate-rich water. The mixture was then piped to the surface and placed in large cauldrons where workers would add some ingredients and then boil it down until all that was left was a crystal known as saltpeter. This crystal is the number one ingredient in gunpowder. America was still young at the time of this operation, and the saltpeter created here became very important during the War of 1812. It's said that Mammoth Cave produced over 300,000 pounds of saltpeter for the war effort. The war came to an end in 1815, and America had maintained its freedom. However, the majority of the workers in the saltpeter production were enslaved men and would not reap the benefit of the freedom for themselves. With the fall of a lucrative industry, a new chapter of Mammoth Cave would begin. The first guided cave tour is believed to have taken place in 1816. Tourism would become the new business model. As we make our way to our next stop, consider what it may have been like to traverse these passages as an early visitor touring this massive, mostly uncharted labyrinth. As you continue down the three-quarter of a mile stretch of limestone chambers, the sound of your footsteps echo through the void. On the left of the paved stone trail, there is a well-worn dirt trail about six feet wide. It was the path used by the oxen-pulled wagons of the mining days. Lined up against the wall are segments of wooden pipe system showcasing the ingenuity of early settlers. On the right of the room, limestone rubble is mounded up across an expanse, 20 feet wide from the trail to the wall. In some areas, the rocks almost reach the ceiling of the cavern. The ceiling is an exposed flattened slab of limestone that creates a uniform expanse as you continue down the path. The floor rises and falls as you continue through the room known as the church. At the widest point, this oval-shaped room is approximately 50 feet across, with ceilings 35 feet tall. Beginning around 1830, on special occasions, services were held in this location. On the left, a large slab juts out from the wall about 15 feet from the path. This point became known as Pulpit Rock. Next to Pulpit Rock, gray boulders of limestone stretch all the way up to the roof. Black soot coats some of the rocks from when guides threw torches to light up various features. This tradition ended in the 1990s. To the right, running parallel to the path, there are two wooden pipes on a triangular wooden scaffold to demonstrate how they would have been set up during the days of saltpeter mining. The bottom pipe is suspended about three feet from the ground. The second is three feet directly above it. As we leave the church, the floor begins to pitch upward to Booth's Amphitheater to the right. Booth's is a stony outcrop at the edge of Gothic Avenue. It is an upper corridor overlapping the level you are on. To access it, there are about 20 stairs that lead upward. Next to the trail on the right, there are three more saltpeter vats. To the left, there is the continuation of the upper passageway, but there is no easy access. Piles of dirt are mounded up high on this side. The limestone walls are smooth from thousands of years of erosion. Each layer of stone is a different thickness and laid down like the layers of a cake. The spaces between, known as bedding planes, allow for air and moisture to travel from the outside world. These, plus 27 known entrances and countless natural ventilation shafts, allow the air to be exchanged regularly. Taking a deep breath fills your lungs with fresh, cool air. Boulders of various sizes and fine grains of light brown dirt line each side of the path. Time passes as the stony scenery begins to blend together, but then there is a sound that snaps you back to the present. Behind the stone walls to the left, you can hear 
water dripping. If you listen closely, you can hear an unfamiliar sound to the dryness of this section of cave. On the surface, water has found a weak spot in the cap rock, and over time has dripped down creating a vertical shaft. It was here that early guides would stop with their groups and tell a story of being able to tell what time it was by the steady dripping of the water. The story has been passed down through generations of guides, earning this location the name The Water Clock. Is it possible to tell the correct time by the dripping? All my sources say it is simply a tale the guides share to draw you in. The drip rate is subject to change based on rainfall. Just ahead of us is our next stop. Two more minutes of walking leads you to the next stop. Visitors gather up against the left stone wall of the chamber. The ranger climbs up on the large boulder standing above the crowd. Behind the ranger, there is a portion of the wall that peeled away, creating a rock 25 feet long, 17 feet tall, and 15 feet wide that resembles a large ship. On the map, it is referred to as the Giant's Coffin. As the stories began to spread about Mammoth Cave, people began to show up from the far reaches of the world. They traveled by ships, stagecoaches, and trains to come here to the middle of nowhere Kentucky to explore this grand, gloomy, and peculiar place. Most of the guides had an elementary education, and some had less than that. They didn't know the science about the rocks or how the cave had developed. They didn't know the stories of the early Native American explorers. Their knowledge paled in comparison to the scholars, gentlemen, and ladies that came to the doorsteps asking for a tour. In the cave, though, these guides had a skill set their visitors lacked. They could weave a tale that could cause you to forget all about the sunlit world above. There were a couple of tours offered in those days. The short trip and the long trip. The short trip could last more than six hours. We're standing here at a famous landmark called the Giant's Coffin. Behind me, the guides would create shadows on the wall of this stone coffin. They told stories of the giants that once roamed these lands. Inside this coffin is the smallest giant of them all. He created the chambers we walk through today by arching his back up and against the earth, forcing the land above him to rise. Every day, the giant would come to the cave to check on the cave creatures within. He guarded the cave and everything in it. One day, the giant fell ill, and when he passed, his body was laid to rest here in the cave. Some say that when the moon and the stars are aligned just right, a cave guide can lift the lid of the coffin. This illusion can be created with complete darkness in a single lantern. On the back wall, the silhouette of the coffin is cast. By moving the lantern up and down, it gives the illusion that the lid is lifting. At the forefront of the Mammoth Cave experience was always the guide. In 1838, a young enslaved man named Stephen Bishop was brought to the cave. He was sold, along with the cave, to a doctor from Louisville, Kentucky. This doctor, John Crine, would change the vision of what Mammoth Cave could be, and Stephen would help make that dream a reality. Improvements were made to the hotel on the surface, and Stephen would expand the known length of Mammoth Cave through his exploration. Aside from being a great cave explorer, he was also quite the entertainer. In the almost 20 years that he led tours through the cave, Stephen would lead prominent members of society through the rugged terrain, intriguing them with his knowledge and storytelling. Individuals like the writer Ralph Waldo Emerson would make the long journey to Kentucky with the purpose of seeing the great underground marvel, and afterwards would write of their experiences and mention their guides by name. The stories of Mammoth Cave do not stop here. For almost 90 more years, visitors, guides, and the cave itself would continue to develop an intricate network of history and science that elevated us to where we are today. There's no way to share or even to fully understand all the stories that this unique place has woven into it. Hopefully, in the short time that we have spent together, you realize with just a few of those stories how connected this underground world has been to the historical realities on the surface above it. A connection so profound, it was worthy of being dedicated as your 26th National Park. As Ranger Chris steps back onto the paved trail, a loose rock sways under his boot and lands back in place with a resounding clank, mimicking the sound made by humans entering into the cave. To this day, visitors pause to experience the silence that otherwise consumes the cave. Silence that humans have broken with their footsteps, their voices, and even musical instruments. From far and wide, musicians have come to the stone performance hall to partake in the unique acoustics.
Echoing through the ages are the sounds of soulful songs of the enslaved people, the violin of an early cartographer, Max Kemper, multiphonic chanting of Buddhist monks, and the modern-day songs inspired by the cave. As we continue our trip back to the warmth of the world above, we close our tour with the sounds of one of those songs, My Old Kentucky Home, performed in the halls of Mammoth Cave by former cave guide Dr. Janet Bass-Smith on piano, accompanied by Klaus Kemper, descendant of Max Kemper, playing cello. was thinking what Max would have said if he, when he bought the music, that his grandson would play it 100 years later. I think he couldn't imagine. Right. And for me, it's a great honor to play here. <laughs> Never stop playing. Uh, I think you all did a great job on producing that, that uh, described tour, and we certainly appreciate it. I hope everyone has enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly, even though I'd heard it before, uh, I think I could hear it several times again. That always there's something new. I, th I think I saw Cheryl a lot um, from Owensboro in the list of attendees here. Cheryl is the president of our Support Alliance, the Visually Impaired Chapter here in Kentucky. And she, uh, I need to give her credit for helping to work with the park to get this um, developed. So thank you, Cheryl. Now I want to ask Ashley if she would like to share with us some uh, comments or some more information, maybe some stories. And I'd like for us to take questions or comments from the audience. We have a lot of participants today. And if some of you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand and uh, we will recognize you as we go along. You do not need to until the end of the presentation in order to ask your questions. So, Ashley, I'll turn the time over to you. And um, if, if we could know when we have hands raised, please, that would be helpful, too. Yeah, we have a hand raised already, actually. Oh, we do? Okay. Yeah. Well, let's let's go ahead and get and get that hand taken care of. And All then right. we'll have Ashley. This is Todd Freitas. You're allowed to talk, Todd. Right. Thank you, Ashley. That was a were you the one besides Chris who was narrating the tour anyway? Is you did a really good job of audio description. It was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yes, that was that was me. Um, I had the opportunity during COVID. I was approached to ask to create the script that both Chris and I read. Mm -hmm. 
um, I've tinkered with writing for most of my life, and I'm very much into descriptive writing. Uh, as an artist, I'm, I love to describe and, and bring to life different things that I, that I experience, and Mammoth Cave is one of the first places that I was able to bring it to life in audio for someone. Is that well, there's, there's something I'd like to ask you about the caves themselves. Okay. Or, or the cave itself. Sometimes when it's raining, a cave will moan because of the acoustics or, or whatever. Does that happen in the mammoth cave or does that not happen? Sometimes- no, we, we don't get as much water in the cave. Most of the water that we're getting when it begins to rain are going to be in places that are creating vertical shafts. And these vertical shafts have the, the ability to amplify a sound. Um, so when water is just dripping, it sounds like a small waterfall. And then when we get increased rain, these vertical shafts, um, the water begins cascading down and it sounds like you're, you're standing next to a mini Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. Because, I'm asking because I, I toured the morning caverns once, and they used to moan whenever it was raining. The only problem was they stopped doing that because somebody had built a huge stair out of iron chips, and all that steel stopped the caverns from moaning. So I just sort of wondered if there was a, okay. another effect like that. Okay. That's very interesting, though. Uh, Mammoth Cave, we don't have that too much just because it's what's considered a dry cave, and the we get various uh, different sounds. The acoustics, again, is something that we're, we've always been fascinated with. Some of the more interesting sounds that I've heard and experienced inside the cave were not necessarily natural from the cave itself, like hearing Tibetan monks doing throat music uh, was very, very interesting inside the cave. Hey, Ashley, would you like to share some information some other information with us uh, or maybe a story well i i've been continuing this project so we've started with this historic tour for you guys and i was beginning to uh, share it around with my co-workers and the superintendent and they were reaching out to family members who have not really been able to fully experience mammoth cave And just locally, I began to see such an impact that it was having on our community and our family and our friends. So it is a project that I have since then expanded upon. Uh, Currently working on some audio described tours for other sections of the cave. Uh, Also working on some audio described tours for some of the hiking trails too, with uh, various cemetery walks and so forth, to try to bring not only the cave itself to life, but the surface too, and bring all those sounds of that natural environment in and combine them with the stories. That's, that sounds wonderful. We'll look forward to those. All right. Do we have, a, so we have another hand? Yes. Melissa Wobshaw. Hello. Um, so my daughter just finished reading a an historical fiction book by Jennifer Bradbury about the cave, Mammoth Cave and the experimental hospital that was, you know, that was used for curing consumption or tuberculo- tuberculosis. I just wondered if you would like to comment on that or if you'd read it or. I'm not sure if I've read the, the fiction book, but I've, have been telling Dr. Cron's story for so many years. Um, I would gladly share any, any information. I, I know that uh, Dr. Cron, he was originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he was out at a place called Locust Grove. Been there. It's a fabulous place. If you get the chance to go walk along and experience that place because it, it is amazing. Um, Dr. Cron, he had a brother that was ill with tuberculosis and they had been working on trying to try various different things to ease his pain and ease his suffering. Uh, he came here to Mammoth Cave and looked around and seen that all the guides, all the visitors were all in great health. People were coming out of the cave after hours and hours and coming out invigorated. 
So they thought that there was something with the cave area. He was, he was absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, of course, he, he in the medical industry, he'd been working on various treatments themselves, but hadn't ran into anything that had really made a difference. And here inside the cave, though, it, it's very, it has a unique feature. I suffer from migraines. And when I go into the cave, that cool, moist air, it eases pressure in my sinuses and helps to alleviate a lot of the pressure caused um, by my migraines. Uh, it's very, very soothing. Think if you have seasonal allergies, once you get down inside the cave, there's not a lot of pollen. So a lot of the symptoms that people will experience here on the surface are eased up when you get into this cave environment. So they haven't quite figured out exactly what it was about the cave that was allowing that to happen. So Dr. Cron had thought it was the cave air. So he ended up purchasing the cave for about $10,000 in the early 1840s. And he continued on with tourism. Tourism, of course, had started here around 1816 and brought in lots of cash flow for Dr. Cron. Um, continuing with the cave tours, he also began to have some guides to build structures inside the cave, at first with the idea that maybe people might pay a little extra to spend the night inside the cave. And after that, he started thinking, well, what if we try to use the cave to cure people of consumption? So he proposed an experiment that was due to last for about six months. Patients could actually pay to be part of this experiment and uh, sign a contract saying that they're basically living inside the cave for six months solid without ever leaving. If we think about that, it, it sounds a little bit scary because modern day medicine tells us that being inside of a damp, dark, um, dusty cave environment is not going to heal or alleviate any of the symptoms of tuberculosis. If anything, it will probably aggravate it. But at this point in time, some of the other treatments were involving drinking mercury or sulfuric acid. So the idea of living inside of a cave, personally, for me, I would be like, let's go instead of drinking acid. But uh, throughout that time, <clears throat> there at the very beginning, a lot of the patients were saying that they began to feel better. There was a placebo effect. Mammoth Cave, for many people, they thought that that was going to be the cure. That, that was going to be the thing that would bring them back to their families. Um, unfortunately, after about five months, a couple of people had already passed and word was beginning to spread that it wasn't working. And Dr. Cron, you know, at that point in time, he's starting to get a lot of criticism. So he ended the experiment early. Patients were removed. Nobody got any better. Um, few of those patients are still buried on the surface in various cemeteries within the park, like the Old Guide Cemetery. Um, families would come often to visit the patients when inside the cave and uh, tours would continue right past the tuberculosis patients as well. It was oftentimes their only connection to the outside world. So oftentimes the visitors would walk along with the TB patients, maybe talking and telling stories, um, just trying to have that connection with the outside world that they had been missing out on, hoping that during all this time that they were going to get better. Okay. Do we have another? Oh my gosh, we have eight hands right now. Oh, so. All right. Well, let's go. All right. Okay. So, Ted, you may talk. I was really looking forward to, to this audio described tour because I actually have been in Mammoth Cave around 35 years ago when I was about 12 years old. I was sighted, but I was visually impaired back then. And because of some other problems, I had to be piggybacked on my dad's back all the way down the entire three quarters of a mile, as far as the tour allowed back then, and then back up. And they didn't have LED lights back then. They were all incandescent. 
I'm surprised that I don't remember as much uh, based on, on the described tour today. And I thought this would have been a little bit longer because of, uh, I, I thought the, the description would have gone on a while longer because uh, you do go uh, three quarters of a mile down. Um, but what I do remember was the tour guide turning the lights off uh, and he had pointed at, he or she pointed out algae that grew on the wall because of the lights. Otherwise, there would not be algae growing on the walls. And they also said something else rather interesting, dovetailing with your uh, saying that people stayed there for overnight or at six months. And the tour guide said this, that to stay in total and utter darkness for more than, and I forget how many hours it was, to come back into daylight would actually blind you. So um, I just wanted to, to say that it was around 80, 1985 or 86 that we had gone to the Kentucky State Fair to show horses and had an opportunity to have that as part of our vacation when I was a child. Okay. Thank you, Ted. Who else? Um, Marsha Farrell. Yeah. You should be able to talk, Marsha. Well, she's getting unmuted. I want to ask Ashley a question. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ashley, um, could you tell us a little bit about the animals that live in the cave? There's um, the tour talked about a variety of animals, um, but I think some of the, of course, we probably all heard the stories of the, the, the blind fish that are in the cave and many other animals. So could you just give us a little more information on them? So I've had the opportunity to see the blind, well, the eyeless. We don't call them blind because they actually have no eyes. Their oh. eyes are now filled with just fatty tissue. Um, so we call them eyeless cave fish. They're quite fascinating. We have two different species. We have a northern and a southern. And a lot of the times the guides like to joke and they always have this one joke they like to tell about how the scientists can never, it's, it's really difficult to tell the difference between the two species, but a local cave guide, we can tell the difference, no problem. And then the visitors are always like, well, how can you tell? It's like, that's easy. The northerners talk funny. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's really they're very interesting creatures because these creatures are in an environment with where there's not a lot that is slowly degrading them, like the UV lights and pollution. It's 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 going to be a more protected environment. Plus, they don't really have predators down inside the cave. So their lives are a lot longer than what the standard fish species will live on the surface. Um, some of the aquatic species can even live up to about 75 years. Part of the reason why they live so long is because they're so few and far between. Um, in order to find a mate to continue on with the species, it, it may take them two years two, three years before they are able to locate um, another one to be able to continue on. Uh, also with food, food's so few and far between. As we had heard earlier, algae, that is something that we technically introduced to the environment. We've been working very, very hard, um, our scientists and our guides putting together light teams to be able to find a light that doesn't interfere in that cave environment, doesn't introduce anything, stopping that algae growth has been, a, um, it's been a lot easier as technology is improving and people are beginning to see how the lights are affecting our environments, not just in the cave, but in other areas as well, especially around coastal cities where uh, large spotlights and stuff are bringing sea turtles inland instead of them going out to the ocean. So we're figuring out how lights are changing our environment and that technology we're able to improve upon and uh, stop our interaction with the environment. But I digress. Down inside the rivers, the eyeless cave fish, 
their only food source is going to be when floodwaters occur. When we receive a lot of rain, the green river on the outside will actually force water back up into the cave passages. And as it's doing that, it's bringing with it a lot of organic material. And that is when those aquatic creatures are going to feast. Between the flooding, then that food gets scarce. So oftentimes they're... um, very little to expend energy. They don't have to uh, scramble as predators are chasing them or anything. So when you encounter them, you'll see them in these murky pools of water. And they're this very pale pink, almost white. Um, It's about as long as your, your pointer finger. These tiny little darted fish And they're sitting there just floating motionless. You're watching. You'll see it slowly just flip one fin. And then it will flip the other fin. And it's just this very slow movement, trying not to expend all of its energy. Very seldom will you see them have a burst of speed. They, they move as little as possible. The crayfish down inside the cave are going to be slightly larger than the fish themselves. Uh, they're probably about as big around as your thumb and about as long as your middle finger. And they look just like the crayfish that we have outside in the Green River. The ones inside the Green River have this light brown to sometimes this this muddy green coloration. Well, inside the cave, their shells, their exoskeletons have become just this um, soft off-white glow. And it's just this light white coloration. And then just beneath the skin, you can start seeing the pink veining of the creature. And they're absolutely beautiful. They almost remind you of these ghostly images of creatures from the surface. Thank you. That was that was that was great. Thanks, Ashley. Did uh, I get unmuted? No, she did not. Um, and she doesn't seem to have her hand raised anymore. However, right, Dar- Darian yeah, does. Okay, Darian. And and by the way, Marsha, I mean um, Ashley. The people on this call are from all over the Ashley. The people on this call are from all over the country. Um, you know, from West Coast to East. And uh, I saw a couple on from Hawaii. So there's people here from everywhere. So now, Darian, go ahead. Hi, these audio tours are so cool. Are they going to be, this one going to be available again to hear again? And could you tell me about the physical access of the cave? Like what it's like, the terrain and what it's like to walk in and, uh, you know, move around in the cave? Well, the this particular tour is also still available on the Mammoth Cave National Park Service webpage under accessible. Um, we do offer that publicly for anybody to be able to experience from home, just going into that and being able to find that audio tour. Also, to make things a little bit more um, accessible, also, the Park Service has developed an app It's called the National Park Service. Um, It covers 423 national park sites, historic sites, uh, recreations, lakeshores, all of the all of our places where that we find special, where you'll find the park service, you'll find the rangers, uh, you'll find volunteers telling these places stories. It is downloadable. You actually go in and search any national park. And a lot of these apps are now bringing to us these audio tours from various places. So we can go in and just click on a park. And let's say we want to go to um, Hawaii and we want to go to the volcanic caves, the, the lava tube caves. And we want to hear more about that. We can go in and find different audio clips where the rangers there have been presenting different things to bring all these places to life for all of us, especially during the COVID, during the pandemic, many of us didn't have the opportunity to travel 
it, this was the way that we could still get out there and experience uh, just by sitting right there at home, bringing these places to us. It's It's been an absolute uh, blessing uh, for this app to come available for that. So, Ashley, um, since you are mentioning that, um, if I wanted to share that experience with my sighted family, can mm-hmm. it be paired with the audio tour? Most definitely. There, the National Park Service app, when you go in and you search the Mammoth Cave, for Mammoth Cave, we have a, a self-guided tour uh, called the Discovery Tour. It's a slightly shorter version, but on that, the audio clips for that particular one are will be coming out any day now. Then they also have another one for Mammoth Cave that's called Beneath Your Feet. And Beneath Your Feet kind of takes you on a surface hike and tells you about locations that are located beneath your feet. On that, on those particular ones, there's a video clip of a park ranger sharing the stories of what's beneath your feet at various locations. Um, that was one that we got to experience very early on before the audio descriptive tour eventually came out. That is another one that unfortunately you will be blessed to see my to to hear my voice once more <laughs> filling the chambers of Mammoth Cave. Um, but it is a very, very fun and entertaining way to be able to experience the surface as well as what's beneath your feet in that particular tour. So um and at Mammoth Cave, there are lots of different ways to be able to experience it. They, we offer various tours throughout the year. We offer hiking tours through the cave, through that natural historic entrance. We take you into sections of the cave that are at the edge of the ridge where water is getting in and making those big formations, those stalactites, the stalagmites, the flowstones, the draperies, the cave bacon, where you can hear the water just dripping at the ends of the formations, kind of echoing and pinging off of other uh, rocks and walls. It's very, very neat. Then there are places that we're going to be getting back into very soon. Um, that are not electrically lit, have no lights, have no actual walking trails, where you're scrambling over rocks, crawling through places only about 29 inches tall, where you have to turn your head to the side and turn your helmet and your headlamp to the side and kind of push forward using your toes to propel you through some of these crawls. It is a a very adventurous tour. It's called the Wild Cave. It's five to six miles of crawling, canyon walking, and bouldering. It is a fascinating way to be able to experience the cave. I've had the opportunity to do it most of my time here at Mammoth Cave. Um, It has allowed me to face some of my own personal fears where I found out I'm uh, very scared of heights, yes, and a little bit claustrophobic. So it's been a growing experience for myself, and uh, it's it's just been a real blessing to be able to share these places with the visitors, and some of them help to bring this place alive for me as well. Okay, uh, all right, Wesley Brown, you should be able to talk. Okay, I'm down there when I did a concert. Know there's a piano in that cave, and just wonder. I didn't know about the entrance. Maybe it was wide enough, but down with the entrance, you said there's like a five foot ceiling. I didn't know the way was narrow, but I'm thinking, how in the heck did they get that piano down there? <laughs> well, the piano that Janet used was a portable one. It isn't your typical concert, uh, like baby grand piano. Oh, was it like an electronic keyboard thing? Yes, yes. Oh, um, like electronic keyboard deal. Okay, that's what I was just thinking about that anyway. But it has such a large sound when you get down there. Janet has played for Mammoth Cave for many, many events 
She earned her doctorate at Western Kentucky University and continued to teach there while being a ranger at Mammoth Cave. And she's come down and been accompanied by lots of amazing musicians throughout the years for activities, including our our celebration that happens the first Sunday of December called the Cave Sing. Uh, The first Sunday of December, we invite people, the public, to come down for a free event where down inside the cave, we take them to a a few different rooms off of that first big giant room. And we have music and we have choirs down their stage singing Christmas songs and Christmas carols. I can imagine. Places just lit with candles. And then we go back up to the surface and have fresh cookies, uh, hot apple cider, and hot cocoa. But it's like, okay, so with an, an acoustic piano, then that's what you So it's like a small okay. one. But you know what? I can imagine what the music must have sounded like. I mean, just let's do my computer speakers. Probably has, doesn't even come close. I can imagine what must have sound like in that cave chamber it has to have been something else it, it's like having a concert hall all to yourself <laughs> thank you wesley who's next okay we have marcia moses hello 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 oh well you let her go first and i'll just stay on oh that was okay sorry about that That's okay okay you can hear me this is charlene now um I wanted to know whether you whether there were any cave paintings left by the Native Americans who first uh, used the caves, explored, whether you have any artifacts from them? Oh, most definitely. Um, scientists there have been able to document uh, artifacts dating back, you know, almost 5,000 years ago from prehistoric Native Americans exploration into the cave and the best we've been able to tell is that they were in and out of the cave for a period of about 3,000 years and along that time they explored close to about 15 miles of cave with just cane reed torches they were uh, coming in we know that they were gathering minerals that are naturally occurring in the dry cave things like epsomite mirabolite selenite and even gypsum what they did with them, we're not 100% sure. We can make a lot of guesses, but most of these minerals are going to be water-soluble. So once they make it to the surface, any evidence of them left behind is slowly going to break down. Uh, but inside the cave, we find tons of pictographs and petroglyphs. The historic route alone was, is a two-mile loop, and for a period of time, it was self-guided around the 60s and the 70s. And during that period of time, there just was not a lot of park rangers to be able to patrol the whole route. We incurred a lot of vandalism during those periods of time. And then we also have to thank 1816, they started doing tours privately owned all the way up until about 1941. July 1st of 1941, we became the 26th National Park. When prior to that, though, writing your name on the wall, smoking it with candle smoke, that was all permitted. So in these highly poured sections of the cave, we've lost a lot of pictographs and petroglyphs. There are some that we're still discovering. I know that uh, in recent years, there, some have come to light that nobody had documented. And then there are some that are are openly shown on tours at Mammoth Cave. There's one called the Violet City Lantern Tour, and there's a place called the Devil's Looking Glass. It's this big giant stone that's been kind of propped up, and on it, we find a lot of historic uh, signatures, meaning when it was privately owned, and beneath it, uh, cave scientists were seeing that there was this smoke writing underneath it. So they were able to take pictures of this particular rock and peel away the layers of signatures and find beneath it some of those prehistoric drawings. Um, There's one that looks like a a large um, triangular shape with a couple of different branches off of it and then a smaller chamber up above. It almost kind of looks like a man, a figure of a man. 
But then on each side of it are these these jagged lines, um, switchbacking down, kind of look like lightning bolts. And one of them even has a branch at the top of it that kind of, to me, resembles a jagged prehistoric snake, like an image of a snake with its mouth open. So there are some amazing figures. There's there's one that looks like this big cloud with lightning bolts coming down from it. And it was drawn using cane um, reed that had burnt down and drawn on the rock. So that's one of the ways that they were able to date it back to the prehistoric Native Americans. But there's lots of various Im- images there, some that were um, carved into the wall, almost form like grids. And again, we're not 100% sure. We can make a lot of guesses based off of information that we're gathering from other tribes and other indigenous studies. Um, but the stories that are connected with those passed down from generation to generation and still having some of those images, that connection back to those people that were in the cave is, is still quite fascinating. Okay. I think we have time for just one more question. Okay. Well, Marcia so Marcia? was, yeah, yeah. Marcia yeah. was, yeah. Mm-hmm. hello. Um, I'll no, make this brief. Uh, I just wanted to say my family and I toured Mammoth Cave back in, oh my gosh, 1969. And uh, it it was fascinating. And I remember that uh, we went down into the cave and they had box lunches so you could buy lunch. And they had this that they had this room where you could uh, sit and have your meal. And then they even they even had restrooms down there. But I guess my main question is, when will tours be opening up again to tour Mammoth Cave? Well, we've started doing guided tours already. Um, The section of the cave that you're speaking of is a place called the Snowball Dining Room. And that section of the cave has been kind of closed off for a while. And that was even before the COVID. During that period of time, uh, a section of the cave along that route called our Grand Avenue. It's four hour, four mile and hiking up a total of four subterranean mountains inside the cave. That section had been getting paving stones along the trails. So they were converting it from the old civilian conservation corps dirt trails to the paving stones to, to make these areas more accessible Um, that section, the snowball dining room, we have just learned from our contractors will become available by the end of July. Uh, We will be able to finally start offering our accessible tour that allows visitors to travel down an elevator down onto those concrete trails. So for people with mobility needs, or people that are just wanting to take things a little bit smoother and easier, we finally can now gain access to that area and offer that through a a passage called Cleveland Avenue. Cleveland Avenue is a, a place where the walls are kind of rounded out. It's what's called a phreatic tube when water was flowing through there, carving it out. But water left this section long ago, and as the walls were drying out, it was creating a buildup of gypsum on the walls. And gypsum and its natural form is this beautiful white. It, uh, it sparkles like frost on a windshield or like sugar. And you'll have this sugary crust just coating the walls. If the pores are big enough of the limestone that it's pushed from, it will actually develop these these large lily flowers. And it will just curl back and they look like they're made of sugar. In some places, the pores were so large that these big blisters will form that look like smushed snowballs covering the ceiling, especially there in the snowball dining room. When Stephen Bishop first discovered that section of the cave in the 1840s, he said that it looked like kids had been down there playing and had thrown snowballs against the ceiling. He 
actually described Cleveland as having these long, stretched out gypsum pieces that looked like cotton that had been pulled apart, and that just by walking by it would cause them to waft and move through the air. Absolutely beautiful places. And that section of the cave was toured from the 1840s and still to this day. But prior to the National Park Service stepping in, visitors were allowed to pluck many of those delicate formations from the ceiling. So some of the best formations are kind of still a little up high, just out of reach. You can still see these clusters of these sugary flowers along the walls. It's, it's absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. Oh, thank you, Ashley. Ashley, this has been fascinating. I hope that our listeners, our other participants, have enjoyed this as much as I have. And we thank you for taking the time this afternoon and the uh, National Park Service for, for allowing you to participate in this tour. It's just been fabulous. I want to um, also remind everyone that ACB Families has four other activities tomorrow afternoon at 5.30. Jack Fox and Jill Fox, uh, talking book narrators, will be reading uh, stories and answering your questions at our ACB Families Ghost Camp. So grab your hot dogs and make some s'mores on your, in your microwave and, and come along and have a good time with us at 5.30. And I think that's on ACB Media One. On Sunday, we have our DNA session where uh, we'll be talking about uh, DNA testing and genealogy and um, Janet Dickelman's husband, Terry, and um, uh, a blinded veteran from here in Louisville named David Smith will be sharing their stories with DNA testing. And then we will also have a lady named Kathy Hooper, who is a registrar with the Ann Rogers Clark chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And she'll be talking about how to document her history um, in order to, uh, if you want to if you think you had a relative that was on the Mayflower or whatever, how to document those that kind of history. Monday night, as I think I said before, is Family Feud with the Council of Citizens with Low Vision at 7.30. Just show up and, and uh, have a create a team and have some fun. And on Tuesday, we will be talking about from segregation to integration, how the schools for the blind uh, integrated after the 1954 Supreme Court decision that said schools needed to, uh, were going to be integrated, not separate, but equal. So we do have a number of things planned for you. ACB Families is, um, is an ACB affiliate. Be sure and contact us if you need more information at 8502-897-1472. I want to thank Jeff Bishop for streaming. And um, I want to thank uh, Desi for um for being our host and i do need to give the code for the continuing education uh, our closing code is 44677 44677 if you are interested in more information on continuing education credits you can either send an email to continuing education at acb.org or visit the acb convention page and you will find a lot of information about the many, many, many sessions that are available for continuing education. Thanks again, everyone, and we hope to see you at the campfire tomorrow at 530.